Christ Church, please turn with me and your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4 as we come to the conclusion of our time uh, in this uh, wonderful uh, and inst- instructional uh, book, Jonah chapter 4. We will be looking this evening at verses 6 through 11 through the end of the chapter. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east Wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Here ends the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for uh, this book. And as we come to the conclusion uh, and to these verses that truly uh, teach us about not only Jonah's heart and about God, about your uh, heart, as it were, uh, but about our own hearts. Uh, we pray, uh, Lord, that you would teach us and, and grow in us uh, a compassion for the lost and a heart for the nations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A spiritually healthy church is an evangelistic church, a mission-minded church, a church filled with compassion for the lost. Likewise, a spiritually healthy Christian is an evangelistic Christian, a mission-minded Christian, a Christian filled with compassion for the lost. Alternatively, a spiritually unhealthy church is one that is focused more on its own comfort and programs than the salvation of the lost and the discipleship of those who have been brought into union with Christ. A spiritually unhealthy Christian is a Christian who is more concerned about his or her own own comfort and possessions and security than the salvation of the souls of his neighbors and the nations. The book of Jonah, uh, a book uh, that certainly uh, focuses on um, uh, primarily uh, the, the sovereign God of the nations who is drawing his elect to himself, uh, is also a book focused on a recalcitrant and self-absorbed prophet. And this book is meant to inspire, as we've been learning, self-reflection in the hearts of God's people. And again, it's not just about the condition of Jonah's heart, but about the condition of our own hearts. That's what Jonah is about. In our text for this evening, in these final verses of Jonah, we are taught, again, many important lessons about God and about ourselves. And when we left Jonah last time, he had gone out of the city. Uh, You'll see there in verse 5, as we finished off last week, and Jonah was sitting uh, east of the city, and he had made a booth for himself or some kind of a small shelter, and he was waiting to see what would happen to the city. So that's where we left Jonah last time. Uh, The question we must ask then is how Did he get there? How did he get there? Where we know, as we've been uh, looking at over the last several weeks, that 
Uh, Jonah was called by God. He received a commission from God to go and to preach uh, to Nineveh. But instead of saying, yes, uh, Lord, uh, send me. I want to go. I want to honor you and to glorify you. And I want to see people come to know you. Uh, no, he, he ran in the opposite direction and uh, jumped on a ship for Tarshish. And of course, uh, we know what happened. God hurled a, a mighty uh, tempest upon the sea. And uh, in a series of events, the sailors, the pagan sailors on that ship, realized that it was Jonah that uh, was causing this. And so they went to him and Jonah said, yes, it's my fault. Throw me over the side and, and, uh, and things uh, will improve. He didn't say turn the ship around. He didn't give any other. Uh, Jonah, he just keeps saying over and over again in this book, I just want to die. I just want uh, to die. I'd rather die than to see this nation of our enemies repent and come under the God of God's merciful hand. And so they throw him into the sea, and of course the storm ceases, and God appoints a big fish, uh, likely a whale, uh, to swallow up Jonah and to take him back to where he was supposed to be. And three days later, spit him up. That three days in the belly of the fish, of course, we know by Christ himself and his own words, uh, was a kind of prophecy um, and a type of Christ himself uh, being in the belly of the earth uh, for uh, three days and uh, then rising again. Of course, uh, in the belly of the whale, uh, Jonah has this experience and he quotes scripture, uh, 11 different Old Testament passages, and he uh, talks about the covenant faithfulness of God uh, and, of course, gets spit up on dry land. What happens next? Well, God commissions him for a second time. Uh, God is patient with Jonah. It's extraordinary how patient God is with this recalcitrant, a reluctant prophet. And he says again in verse 2 of chapter 3, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Uh, so interesting, isn't it, if I can pause for a moment to see that God sent Jonah to this great city, and we see uh, the Apostle Paul and the other apostles going to many of the great cities. It wasn't solely to great cities that they went to in the New Testament after the Great Commission was given to them, but many of them were. In fact, a large, larger percentage uh, of great cities is where the apostles went than not, and it should teach us something about our missionary endeavor, right? That it's important that we keep in mind that the, the cities are where the people are in mass. And it's where culture is shaped and developed. And so we want to go to those places where the most people are. And we want to go to rural places as well. Yes, of course. But we see God sending Jonah to this great city, even as the apostle Paul and the other apostles did uh, in the New Testament. And so Jonah uh, went. Uh, after the second commission, he goes and he obeys the Lord and he preaches uh, the word of God. And what happens? Well, as we see in verses 6 and following in chapter 3, the word of God reached to the very king of Nineveh and he repented. He, everyone down to the lowest peasant, repented of their sin. Look at verse 7. And he issued, the king issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah, rather than be pleased with what God has done and having mercy on his enemies, he is displeased. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Remember that phrase, displeased Jonah exceedingly. We're going to see in a moment how absolutely ridiculous Jonah is in the exceeding joy that he expresses for something so petty and minor. And again, we'll see ourselves in this mirror. 
as we have Jonah-itis sometimes uh, ourselves. It says there in verse 2, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In Ephesians chapter 2, we have this same kind of language, don't we? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. But God, because of his great mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, has brought you from death to life, has made you in union with Jesus Christ. That's what God does. He's a God of mercy. In that passage in Ephesians 2, we have the words mercy, great mercy. We have the words grace, and we have the words great love. And so Jonah is expressing here, God, this is why I ran in the opposite direction, because you are a God of grace, of mercy, and of love. And of course, as we've considered before, Jonah uh, is filled with uh, anger and displeasure. Uh, and prejudice towards the people of Nineveh. Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah then went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So as we, as we consider this next section, let us not forget the main message of this, this book. It's not about a fish. It's not about uh, sort of uh, trying to figure out scientifically how it all happened because we know that God works miracles. We don't know if Jonah was dead in that fish and then resurrected and made alive when he was spit out. We don't know if he survived the whole three days. It doesn't matter. The fact is it's a historical story. It happened and it foreshadows the coming of our Savior who died and was raised on the third day. But this, this story is not mainly about the fish. It's not even mainly about Jonah. It's about God, the God of grace, the God of mercy, who has a purpose, a saving purpose for the nations. From every tribe, tongue, and nation, he will save a people for himself and he will send his son into the world to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem to accomplish that redemption. Look with me at Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. And in Revelation chapter 7, we really see that which should be in our minds as we consider the Great Commission and the mission of the church Chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, some of them being from Nineveh, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the greatest spectacle in the history of the world and in all eternity. All of God's elect. This is John having the revelation of, of what is going to happen in the future. And surrounding the throne of the Lamb will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. As I was speaking to a friend about ministry in Papua New Guinea, there will be people from Papua New Guinea who believed the gospel that was preached to them. There will be people from Nineveh 
There will be people from Charleston, South Carolina. There will be people from all over the world in all the languages giving praise to God for his redemptive work in his son. That is the aim and the focus ought to be of the church as we go about our mission. But here is Jonah. Here is Jonah. He is missing the entire plot. (laughs) He is sitting under his little shelter, and he is, we can assume, uh, we can suppose that Jonah was still holding out hope that God would strike down his enemies. He's waiting and he's watching. Maybe, Maybe God will make them like Sodom and Gomorrah, like I've always wanted. I'm going to watch and see. Uh, maybe God will not have mercy on them in the end. In fact, we can believe, knowing Jonah's attitude throughout this entire book, that he was hoping to have a front row seat to their destruction rather than being among them after they had shown clear signs of repentance. Why isn't Jonah down there ministering to people who are weeping Uh, under repentance. Why isn't he down there following up with everyone? Well, because he's where he is, feeling sorry for himself and angry at what God uh, has done. His heart was not to see his violent enemies redeemed by the grace and mercy of God, but to be destroyed by the wrath and judgment of God. Jonah wanted God's forgiveness and mercy, but he didn't want God to extend that same forgiveness and mercy to the Ninevites. Look with me now at verse 6. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Now, some commentators will kind of make a, you know, something of God's sort of mercy and kindness to Jonah, even in his disobedience and giving him some earthly comfort. Um, I, I don't really see that. In fact, what I see here, as I'll say in a moment, is a lesson, is a lesson for Jonah and a lesson for us. He gives this to Jonah so that he'll, he will take it away in just a day's time in order to teach him and us a lesson, but before I uh, expound on that point, uh, let us not uh, overlook the fact that in our text, over and over, God is appointing things. He is showing Himself to be, even as we saw earlier uh, in Exodus 14 in the parting of the Red Sea. God is the God of creation, and He is carrying out His will and His purpose by. Uh, his sweet providence. He's working out things. He does things that are small. He does things that are big. He does all things well and according to his will. But notice in this section that God appoints a plant. He then appoints a worm to eat the plant, and God appointed a scorching east wind. Earlier on in chapter 1, he appoints a, a, or, or he hurls a great wind on the, on the sea, and he appoints a great fish. God appoints whales and he appoints worms. God is not just involved in kind of the the big things in this world. He's not just working in palaces with with, uh, governors and princes and princesses and kings and queens and all the great people and the, 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 the major sort of tectonic movements of history. He is at work in the smallest little things in our lives. Everywhere, he is, he is at work. He's carrying out his will. And we, we should see that here. We are reminded that God is sovereign and all creation is under his power and his care. He works all things according to his will. All things, great and small. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 11, says this. God's works of providence are, what are his works of providence? His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all of his creatures and all of their actions. Even the worm, Pastor John? Yes, 
even the worm, or whatever else. Even the, the mosquito that was flying around our bathroom this morning and I was trying to, trying to kill. Every creature, great and small, is under the power of our sovereign God. And he is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This ought to bring great comfort to our hearts. Because even when God gives us something and then takes it away, he's doing it in order to teach us and to grow us and to remind us of important points uh, in his word, principles and promises. And that's a wonderful comfort, isn't it? God loves us that much. He loves you that much that he will sometimes give you something and then take it away only to teach you that he is better than whatever it is he took away or that his plan and purpose is better for whatever he has given and taken away. So why is he doing these things? Why does he appoint this plant to grow up and give Jonah shade and comfort for really a short period of time? Why does he send the worm to attack the plant? Why does he do this? Well, he does this to reveal to Jonah how petty and self-absorbed he is. Now, I'm glad we never are like that. I'm glad that we're never petty, self-absorbed, consumed with the world, consumed with our own advancement, more so than the advancement of the gospel. Of course, we are. You see, this is to expose Jonah's heart. And it's to expose our own hearts. Here we see in the word of God, it's like a mirror. You see, this is what God does for Jonah, and it's what he does for us. He gives us things for a time to expose the worldliness of our hearts and our lack of commitment to that which really matters most. And that's just one way he does it, but he does it in all kinds of ways. He's always getting our attention because he loves us. And I'm thankful for that. Listen to what uh, Rick Phillips says in his commentary on Jonah as it concerns these things. Quote, God's questions to Jonah call for us to consider ourselves. Do we look upon the gospel as a consumer product for our personal benefit? Have we set up our little booths outside the culture, content to enjoy God's mercy for us while savoring the misfortunes of a God-alienated world? To put it in Jonah's terms, he writes, what makes us glad? Are we grateful for God's grace to us and delighted about signs of grace in others? Is that what makes us rejoice? I would say that one of the greatest marks of a Christian is how delighted they are to see God's work in someone else's life. If that is of no concern to you, I will say in love as your pastor, you are in a very spiritually unhealthy state. Again, one of the clear marks, clear fruits of a Christian is that they are happy and rejoicing in the work of God in others. Now, Jonah here is certainly has this big problem, and God is, is using this. And, and we don't know the end of the story. Do you notice how Jonah ends? We don't really know what happens to Jonah. And, and, and there's purpose to that. There's purpose to that. Ho- hopefully, he came to recognize what a self-absorbed uh, uh, and ridiculous uh, man he was being as he kept talking about how he'd rather die than... Uh, do God's will, and he'd rather die than to see the Ninevites repent and believe uh, the the truth of God and and come into a right relationship with God. But we just don't know. Uh, the, The point is not what happened to Jonah. The point is that Jonah was acting this way at this time, and oftentimes so do we. So do we. 
What makes us glad? What makes us rejoice? Well, certainly we should rejoice in our own salvation. Certainly we should rejoice that we've been delivered from sin, death, and hell. But are we unconcerned about the billions of people who still do not have this message, who still do not know this gospel, who still do not believe this gospel, and who hate God and his word? And notice the contrast of Jonah's reaction to the salvation of Nineveh and the raising up of the plant to give him shade and comfort. I, I um, wanted to, you to see this contrast. Notice in chapter 4 and verse 1 that it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. What? Well, that God had had mercy on the Ninevites. It displeased him exceedingly, and he was angry. But notice, uh, we see in verse 6, that the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad, exceedingly glad because of the plant He's upset that 120,000 people have repented after the preaching of the Word of God and are showing these signs of repentance and faith in God and His promises of mercy, uh, eventually in the person of Christ. And he's exceedingly glad about a plant. A plant. How often, we have to ask ourselves, Are we bent out of shape for the most trivial of things while seemingly unmoved by things eternal? How often does that happen? And and, and, and why does this happen? Because we get drawn in to the superficiality and the triviality of the world in which we live, and we start putting our focus and attention and emotion and time and energy and money in things that really just don't count. I have a book on my shelf in my library. It's a collection of essays given to me by my friend Daryl Hart many, many years ago, and it's, it's the title of it is Things That Count. And so much of we put our heart and soul and emotions into really, at the end of the day, they don't count. They're trivial. Uh, In fact, I'm remembering a um, uh, a humorous video that I saw um, uh, many years ago. Man, it must be like 20 years. But I I remember it because it kind of made this point. And it was an announcer. uh, It was a, a mock announcer for the BBC Sports and it was a guy walking uh, on a soccer pitch talking about this game that's coming up. It's the game of the ages, the game of the century. There's going to be nothing like it. These two teams are powerhouses, and you've got to watch this game. It's the game of all games until next week. And it, it, it's, it's every time I hear announcers now talking about the next big game, the next playoff game, the next Super Bowl, the next this, the next that. It's always, this is going to be the event of the ages. But then it comes and it goes. It's discussed for a few days. And then we move on to the next big game of the ages that you can't miss. And we put our time and our emotion and our thoughts and we memorize statistics and we put so much focus on all this stuff that really, at the end of the day, can be kind of a pastime that you enjoy and have a hobby. And certainly we we can have those things, freedom in Christ. But what happens is those things actually become that which we put all of our time and money and emotion into that sometimes even breaks up marriages and families. This is what Jonah does. He puts his focus, his time, his energy, his emotions into a plant. Into a plant. And yet is unconcerned about the salvation of souls or the condition 
of his own heart. And here we see ourselves. How we too, like Jonah, need to be shaken out of our evangelistic slumber. It is never okay for us to be unconcerned for our lost friends, family members, and neighbors. It's never okay. And uh, those who would think that really, you know, Pastor John, that's, that's, that's your, your job. Uh, we, 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 we take care of you so that you can evangelize the lost. We'll pray for you. But that's not it at all. Actually, I'm, I'm called to make disciples, and mature disciples are called to be salt and light. Mature disciples are called to, have a, to be able to share the hope that's within them. And so when we uh, sit under the preaching and teaching of God's word and the training that happens in, in uh, Sunday school and uh, when we are in small groups and when we're in men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies and such, uh, all of this is meant to make us mature disciples and a mature disciple and a maturing disciple is one who has a heart for the lost. Those who are, as we read this morning in Luke 1, sitting in the darkness and in the valley of the shadow of death. Think for a moment, if you did not know Christ and you did not know the gospel. Covenant children, think of yourself growing up in an unbelieving family, having no idea about the gospel. Maybe you've heard some things here and there, but you really don't know the gospel. You're walking in ignorance. In fact, this text talks about those who don't know their right hand uh, from their left. That's speaking of the ignorance that they had before, before Jonah came and preached to them. How many in our own community do not know their right hand from their left as it concerns the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so we, dear ones, need to be shaken out of our evangelistic slumber, and it can so easily happen that we get caught up in the trivialities of this world and we neglect that which God has set before us, namely the Great Commission. In verse 10, God says, You pity the plant that was here yesterday and today has perished, but you care not for the 120,000 spiritually ignorant souls. And so as we conclude this series uh, together and we uh, do so. We need to, of course, be reminded of this great salvation through Jesus Christ, uh, uh, this, uh, this wonderful work of redemption through his life, death, and resurrection, that we ourselves are resting in that, but that we are not simply resting in that, but we are exercising our faith in the going out and being his faithful witnesses in the world. And dear ones, I want to get extremely practical with you this evening. God has in his sovereignty not only appointed the worm and appointed the whale and appointed the plant uh, and appointed the winds, he has appointed your place in your generation at this time to be plopped down wherever you are and whatever vocation you are in and whatever buildings you go to during the week and whatever neighborhood you live in, God has placed you there to be a living witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his life, death, and resurrection. And so I want to encourage you in these very practical ways, first of all, to pray for the lost daily. Pray for the lost daily. Make it a part of your prayer life. You will not be concerned about that which you don't pray about. Pray for the lost daily. Pray for specific people in your prayer life. Those whom you have in your life that don't know the Lord, that the Lord has given you a friendship with or a relationship with that you can begin to foster and cultivate a kind of evangelistic relationship. Now, there are all different ways to do that, all different kinds of relationships that we have. And so it's not all gonna look formulaic. But you're, you're cultivating that heart as you're praying uh, for these people. And this will serve to cultivate compassion for the lost. God has compassion on these 120,000. Jonah has none. In fact, quite the opposite. We have to ask ourselves, do we have compassion 
Are we imitating God? Are we imitating our Savior who was full of compassion for sinners? Secondly, I want to encourage you to pray specifically for those who we as a nation might consider ourselves to be enemies with. Uh, Now, I've said this in this series numerous times. I'll say it again. The polarized news cycle is training us to hate our, to hate foreign nations who might be political or military enemies with us. But we are not to hate them. We are to pray for them and to pray for their salvation and to pray for missionaries who will be willing to risk their lives to take the gospel to them. Pray for the Middle East. Pray for North Africa. Pray for Asia. Pray that God would soften your hearts towards the billions who need Christ. This church will be at its healthiest when it is at its most evangelistic. It's when the conversations that are happening in the hallways are about who we witnessed to that week and conversations we had with our coworker or with a family member. And, and I'll say this. And I'm happy to say this. I'm delighted to say this as your pastor. I do hear those conversations. Even today, after the service, I'm talking to members of this church who are sharing with me about how they're sending out sermons from Christ Church to their friends and and, and neighbors and family members that they love and want to see come to know Christ. Those who are inviting people to church and getting engaged with them on a gospel level. It's wonderful. So pray for that. Thirdly, I want to encourage you to pray for laborers in the harvest. Pray for laborers in the harvest. Uh, We need more uh, men to be raised up to preach the word of God. We need more men and women who are willing to go to the mission field. And let's make this a matter of our prayers and that God would raise up men and women from this congregation to go. Fourthly, give of your resources. Give of your resources towards uh, the, the gospel, and uh, we as a church are, and elders are thinking through ways, more strategic ways, to cultivate this heart and attitude in the heart of our congregation. And then finally, reach out to the lost with compassionate hearts. Reach out to the lost. Don't just pray for them. Have a kind of strategy to reach out to them. Pray for that courage. Pray for that initial conversation. You know, and be be. Uh, you know, um, wise and prayerful about how you engage with others. There are simple ways to do that. And most people I have learned over the years are actually happy to talk about spiritual things. They may not be happy with you when you uh, share some things with them about the Christian gospel, but most people I have found are willing to engage and interested to learn. And so let us take that word to the lost, take that gospel with compassionate hearts uh, to the lost. And as we do do so, let us remember that it is God himself that is drawing the elect from the nations. And it's not our responsibility to change hearts, but only to share the message which the Spirit uses to change hearts. Amen? So let us go forward with confidence Let us go forward with courage, filled with God's Spirit, recognizing the poor example of Jonah, but how often our own hearts reflect the heart of Jonah. But let us rejoice in and glorify the God who goes to to cities even like Nineveh and comes to homes even like ours uh, to save sinners by His grace. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for the book of Jonah and for many of the practical lessons that we have learned as as we see as in a mirror our own hearts reflected through the life of Jonah. But we thank you, Lord, that even through this recalcitrant prophet, even through our own disobedient hearts, Lord, you are pleased to work and you are patient with us and you use us despite ourselves to be salt and light in the world. But Lord, we pray that we would be more conscious more ready, less distracted by the world, less focused on the trivial things and more focused on that which is eternal. And may you receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And beloved, I'll invite you to please stand as we sing our psalm of response. O God, to us show mercy 
number 67A in your Psalter. You may be seated. The eternal Son of God assumed human flesh to be our perfect representative and mediator between God and man. And it's at this table that we are so powerfully reminded of this glorious truth that Christ did indeed become flesh and blood. And as we uh, uh, handle the bread and, and the wine, and as we eat and drink, and as we uh, smell, uh, all of the senses are engaged, as it were, uh, with this gospel message. And so we've just heard the gospel preached to our ears, and now we have the gospel preached to our eyes and to our smell and to our taste, and we are so powerfully reminded. Do this in remembrance of me, uh, that Christ gave his life for our salvation. As you come to this table, repent of your sin. Uh, turn from those things you know displease the Lord. Perhaps this evening you were convicted, even as I was. I get convicted all the time when I'm preaching, uh, that we would repent of our reluctant hearts, as it concerns evangelism, that we'd repent of putting so many trivial things of this world before reaching people for Christ and sharing that good news. Let us repent of these and other things, perhaps secret sins that you have allowed into your life. Let us turn from those things and come to receive forgiveness and grace and mercy in Christ. If you are holding a grudge against someone, if you're full of hatred or anger towards someone, repent of that before you come to this table and make it right with that person. Here at the Lord's table, we receive God's mercy and forgiveness and grace in Christ. And so if you are a baptized member of a Bible-believing church in good standing, you are welcome to come to this table. If not, we encourage you to refrain. But as you come, come with faith. Faith not in yourself and in your own works, but faith in Christ and in his works of salvation for you. Let us, um, so our Lord Jesus Christ, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, symbolizing his brokenness for us on the cross. And he said, take, eat, this is my body, broken for you. Eat of it, all of you, in remembrance of me. 
And in the same manner also he took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, in remembrance of me. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for this table, this table of blessing. And Lord, as we approach this table and we are served this bread and wine, and as we partake, oh Lord, would you comfort us in your love? Would you remind us of your great love and mercy, which you have lavished upon us in Christ? Would you remind us that though we still yet struggle with sin and doubt, you love us, you are patient with us, and you, through these means, strengthen our faith and strengthen our love and devotion to you. We thank you, Lord, that you love those with the weakest of faith, even as you love those with the strongest of faith. Uh, Through this table, Lord, would you strengthen our communion with Christ and so powerfully remind us of the unshakable union we have with your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
Body of Christ, broken for you. Let us pray. Our sovereign, covenant-keeping God, we give you thanks that you are the Lord of the nations and that you bless us that we would be a blessing to the nations. Show us, Lord, as a congregation and as individuals how we might be more faithful to the Great Commission and to be faithful laborers in the harvest to be those that are salt and light and who give an answer for the hope that's within us. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your mercy, for your forgiveness, for your kindness, and for your patience and your love, which are abundant and free in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to please stand as we sing together, Lift Up Your Heads, Ye Mighty Gates, on page 9 of your bulletin. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. And all of God's people said, Amen.